Today, um, I'm going to have you using an audience response system. For those of you who have come in late, they're up here. Uh, clickers are up here in front. Uh, feel free to just walk up and get one. I would encourage you to talk together during the session. The idea of medicine is not that we're, we're loners. Many times when you're taking a test, you are the only one who can answer that. If you're a student, uh, you can't ask your partner, well, what do you think about this question? But in real life, in medicine, uh, whether locally or globally, medicine is no longer that paradigm. It's a paradigm of talking to each other, sharing ideas. Uh, I enjoy a great deal getting mail almost every day from people around the world who are struggling with some issue medically. And uh, they send pictures, they send questions, they send all kinds of things that help me to you have teaching material for residents and for other settings. So much of what I'm sharing with you today has been given to me by others around the world. So I just wanted to acknowledge that right at the beginning. If you have your clicker then, you will be uh, using that. I have no uh, financial disclosures or other connections to uh, reveal. Um, we have some learning objectives that we're uh, supposed to reach, and those will be for you to recognize at least four major diseases that prevent with, present with fever and some uh, basic clinical approaches to uh, fever, especially in uh, resource-poor centers. This is a picture of my family and uh, me when I had a little bit more hair. In the early 80s, we lived for six years in uh, Kenya, and uh, that was my introduction to uh, medicine and developing world. This is a picture from Doug, Dr. Doug Briggs, who's working in northwestern or southwestern China right now. Uh, he sent me this picture recently. Of, uh, just to remind us, we're going to walk around the world with uh, colleagues who are on the front lines in some very, very difficult circumstances, uh, trying to figure out what things they're, they're seeing without, uh, uh, with a minimum of, of lab, with a minimum of technical support. They've got their eyes, their ears, and, and usually some communication resources uh, and, of course, they can always refer if, if it gets too complicated. If we look at uh, clinical presentation of people who return as travelers, it's kind of like sending guinea pigs out into the world to see what they get. And uh, these are, this is the way we know what, uh, what diseases are, have certain prevalence in, in certain areas. Uh, so if we look at uh, the GeoSentinel data, which is a, it certainly is a biased database. It's, it's clinics that are, uh, have, have more resources to diagnose. But by the time uh, people come there, they have to have been able to have survived an illness for a period of time, generally, to get to a GeoSentinel uh, clinic. So there's a bias here. But clearly, uh, the, the most common reason people make it to these uh, clinics are fever and then uh, GI issues and some skin things. So in this first talk, I'm going to focus on the number one thing there, which is fever. And later today, I'll be talking about uh, diarrhea and some skin lesions. 
It's a picture of a lunar eclipse that uh, it happened in China recently, just uh, sent to me. When you uh, want to think about talking to people who have traveled, there are key uh, questions that you want to ask those people, and some of those you were asked when you walked into this, uh, this building, uh, screening for Ebola. Where, where have you traveled, and when did you get back from that travel? The exposures that you might anticipate from a particular area that you travel, and what preventive measures did you take to avoid those exposures? And then we want to think about, do you have a transmissible disease? This is part of Ebola, saying if you have something, we want to make sure you're not passing it on to someone else. And then, do you have any, are there any urgent treatment needs? So these are the four questions uh, that I want you to think about as you engage people who have a fever. And, and, uh, and I'm going to show you some cases that illustrate the importance of those key questions. When we think about differential diagnosis of fever in a returning traveler, um, you might say, well, there's hundreds of things that could cause fever, which is true. But today, for our hour that we have together, we're going to try to focus on things that are the most common. So there are a lot of esoteric things that cause fevers. But what I'm going to ask you to walk out with today is the most common. The common usually presents in odd ways. So that even what you think you know, you might not recognize. So let's, let's see how we do as we think about the most common reasons. And these are the ones that we're going to focus on today. There'll be a few surprises in here, depending on how far we get in our, our, our cases. But uh, I want you to be able to say, if I have a handful of things that I'm thinking about when a person who comes back from traveling, you're going to say malaria. You're going to say dengue chicken gunya. They're very similar viral illnesses. You're going to say typhoid. Ebola, and then there'll be others. That'll make out the hand that we're going to try to get at um, uh, during our time today. We want to acknowledge that there are limited diagnostic tests in many, many areas of the world. Uh, in the place where I was at, I had a microscope. I had some uh, a centrifuge to do some hematocrits, a few dipsticks, and I, I made a little homemade uh, culture uh, gadget uh, off the back of a, of a gas refrigerator uh, because we didn't have electricity there. But in, in this era, uh, I want you to think about the fact that the history and the physical exam are very key to finding out what you're thinking about when you're facing a person with a fever. You may have a microscope and a few dipsticks. The exciting thing from my perspective that is coming in is really rapidly changing the world of infectious disease is PCR testing and rapid card tests. These are things, in, for the young people here, these are things that are going to be a real part of your world, even if you are in a very remote area. So these little boxes that they use, PCR used to be a very difficult kind of technology to test uh, for certain types of diseases. Now there's going to be increasing numbers of these that are panels 
that they'll say, you've got a person with a sputum, you just put a sample in the, in, the, in the gadget, run it, and in a couple hours you'll have answers back. It creates some questions. I don't have the times to, uh, to go over right now, but I think it is exciting technology. And then you can always refer if they're critically ill. Here are two um, students. I don't know if you can pick out the students in the group there, but uh, <coughs> they, these are two of my students who went to uh, southwestern Uganda uh, in uh, two years ago. And uh, the ironies are always that you, you can't predict what will happen on a trip, uh, but it happened that there was an Ebola outbreak in the area where these two were at in southwestern Uganda while they were there and it created quite a bit of concern for them. So let's look at a few cases. Now your clickers, as you see the cases, I want you to talk to each other. Feel free to chat. Don't feel like you're just listening to me. Talk to each other and say, I think that's what's possible. And then you can help each other as you get uh, your choices. Okay, so the first case is a case that's just uh, brand new. Uh, Just uh, a month or so ago, a 52-year-old high school principal from Spokane traveled to Sierra Leone. You might have said, that's poor judgment. But that was he, uh, he and his wife both went. Uh, they, they sponsor orphans in uh, Sierra Leone, and they went there and spent uh, two weeks uh, and returned at the end of August. Uh, he had done uh, some pre-travel planning and had uh, done uh, the appropriate things that should be for uh, a travel to West Africa. He'd gotten his hepatitis A vaccination, his yellow fever vaccine, and he was given doxycycline for malaria prophylaxis, which is one of the three Uh, options for malaria prevention. He was working with orphans. He was not ill during his trip. But on September 15th, he developed the onset of fever and chills 44 days after returning from his trip. His fevers were variable at the beginning, but then began to increase up to 104 degrees on the sixth day when he went to the emergency room. His story there was that he'd had a little bit of watery diarrhea for three days. Uh, He'd had some nausea and some dry heaves and headaches, myalgias, and and really nothing else. No specific findings to kind of uh, focus on one organ. Past medical history was unremarkable except for a little hypertension and some chronic back pain. And he was married, no other sexual partners, and no bad uh, behaviors. His wife and daughter had recently had an upper respiratory infection, but he was, but they were improving and he was not. Um, there was no camping, no wild ex- animal exposure. So these are the kinds of questions we want to ask people as they travel. And a lot of people come back and have had various exposures to wild animals uh, that can change the diagnosis. He had uh, taken his doxycycline. He was very insistent on this. He hadn't missed a day. Uh, exactly as told, and, and uh, kept it up for three weeks after his return. So his, when he shows up at the urgent care center, uh, uh, I should have asked, how many of you all have clinical experience here? Just, uh, just some, okay, so the majority of you, great. If you weren't one of those people who raised a hand, 
chat by somebody who's, uh, who's next to you so you can uh, kind of get a picture. This is a person who's obviously hypotensive and tachycardic. He's, uh, he was volume depleted, his temperature 103. But the rest of his exam is pretty unremarkable. Uh, his white count is not elevated, although he's got 19% bands, which is a little bit of a left shift. And uh, the CRPs, uh, C-reactive protein, slightly elevated there. And uh, platelets are slightly low uh, at 104,000. Bilirubin minimally elevated and creatinine up a little bit, but as soon as he got some fluids, that came down. A little bit of acidosis with a CO2 of 20, but a normal lactate. And a slightly low magnesium and phosphorus, and urine dipstick was negative. So here's your first question. What do you think is the most likely diagnosis? So you got... I'm going to just give you a few uh, seconds to think about this, so don't, uh, don't delay. Uh, try to click on your response as soon as you have it so that we don't uh, waste time uh, thinking about this and chat together. Okay, that's good. Love to hear that chatter out there. That's fantastic. And we've got, we've got about uh, 30 responses in so far. Uh, I'm going to just take those that I have now. 36 responses. Okay, let's see what people thought. Okay, so we got typhoid fever. Was uh, Most of you thought he had might have typhoid fever. Okay, and... Um, and some said malaria, and some said dengue. So we, and then not much for yellow fever and Ebola, which I'm glad to see that you uh, you eliminated those. Yellow fever vaccine very effective, and and uh, he gotten his yellow fever vaccine, and he's too far out for Ebola, isn't he? So let's see how the story plays out. When uh, the nurse, who was a school nurse heard that her principal was ill and he just got back from Sierra Leone. She called me and said, would you check up on our principal? He's going into the emergency room. So I, uh, it was a Sunday evening, and I, but I called into the emergency room to find out what was happening. Uh, they told me their thoughts, and I shared some of mine, which uh, you can see here. Um, it was unlikely to be Ebola or dengue or chikungunya, any of these that have a short-term uh, 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 incubation period. But there were some other possibilities there. The thing that was striking is he, he had a little bit of diarrhea, but he really didn't have abdominal pain. And most people, that I, I think, with when you're getting typhoid, a little bit more common presentation to be even constipated and have an ileus with that but uh, certainly in the differential uh, diagnosis. And, of course, you can have illness that's unrelated to travel. Even though you have recently traveled, it may be totally unrelated. So we want to think about those things. So here's what the ER physician said. With him being out of, out of Sierra Leone for nearly 50 days, it's too late for any of the serious possibilities. Now, I want you to tell me, what is the error in that statement? What, what, what was the mistake 
in that statement. Yeah, he, the, 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 I heard Sirius here. There was, a, there was a translation from he doesn't have Ebola to he doesn't have any serious thing, right? So that was that. This is where we want to make sure our thinking isn't distorted because we are hearing a lot about Ebola. Don't get uh, lost in Ebola only. So the ER diagnosis was sepsis syndrome, unknown source with transient hypotension responsive to IV fluids. And uh, I made some suggestions for further testing. I don't know if what, what you would say. If anybody wanted to shout out something they would uh, request here. Very good. Very good. Here's his malaria smear. Um, and, uh, in fact, there's two slides here. Both of these are his actual slides. And you see nice, small, tight rings here with the chromatin dot there. Um, typical of falciparum malaria. So this is, uh, and, and his, uh, his parasitemia was actually quite high. Now, I'm going to tell you why this, this played out the way it did, because this is a little bit of an unusual story. Um, the, the, we also had them do a card test on uh, this patient, a, a rapid card test. Are you all familiar with rapid card tests? Have you any of you see sands of people who recognize rapid card tests? Rapid card tests are very nice, and in fact, they're better than microscopy in many rural clinics. Uh, they've been shown to... Uh, be more accurate in making diagnosis. But there are er there's problems with the cards as well. But this fellow had 4% parasitemia, which is a serious. If you get 5%, you've got critical malaria. Here's the card test, and what it does is it shows uh, two bands. There's actually a control band there, and then there's what's called a, 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 a T1, a T2 band here that look for... Uh, Aldolase is the T2, which is just a general malaria marker. And then there's one that's more specific to P. falciparum. So this patient had both markers positive, which just meant that he had a high burden of P. falciparum rather than two different malaria parasites. He was given the tovaquam proguanolin, rapidly improved, and uh, went back to full-time work last week after a prolonged period of kind of fatigue and gradually getting his strength back. Does anybody want to say why this fellow gets malaria? Yeah. You know, doxycycline has been anecdotally shown to not work in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Other thoughts? There's the bingo. There's the bingo. He, was, he actually took every single pill he was given. But the person who gave it to him miscalculated. So we, we did two things, uh, just, just to address the first point. There's no, there's no sh uh, proven doxycycline resistance, not yet anyway. I sent his sample to the CDC, and they are analyzing it right now to say, are we, going, are we seeing markers, genetic markers of doxycycline resistance? So far, the CDC says we have not found any yet, and they're almost always related to inaccurate taking of, of prophylaxis. Yes, in the back. Yes, could you repeat people's comments? Because they are yes, yes, thank you for reminding me of that. So, so the questions, uh, the comments were that uh, the, he had stopped his doxycycline too early, 
And he only took it for three weeks after returning. And it should be for four weeks. And uh, so he, he very likely he had a late onset of malaria with falciparum. It's usually much earlier. So that was very likely he just got it at the very end of his time. And then it came out of the liver phase into the, into the blood phase. And that was the reason he had that. Okay, let's keep moving on here to our next case. Um, this is a uh, five-year-old Ugandan child that I saw who presented with seizures. And I'll just give you a chance to look at that mama and her baby. Um, and then here's the question. What is the most likely cause of this child's fever and seizures? So you've got your clickers and you can chat with each other quickly. It was very high. Okay, I'll give you about uh, 10 more seconds to uh, respond. Okay, let's see what people said here. Okay, so there was a fair number for meningitis. And, uh, and uh, typhoid and, uh, and also dengue. Okay, so uh, let's look at this. Uh, this patient has this. So what does, the, what does he have? He has cerebral malaria, doesn't he? And this is, this is very, very common. Just to show you the variety of ways malaria presents. Malaria can present uh, with severe anemia and congestive heart failure. Uh, so kids come in with edema. Uh, they look uh, malnourished. It's a cause of frequent uh, premature labor. Uh, lots of things that re are related to malaria. And so this is uh, P. falciparum again. Just to show us a little regional map and show you that the vast majority of this is coming uh, out of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and also in Southeast Asia, uh, the other areas are, are lower risks. So here's another story that's quite recent and a little bit uh, uh, obtuse, uh, but, but quite fascinating to me. A 50-year-old uh, man who, who uh, had just returned with his family from six years in West Africa. He, he lived in Guinea and Cameroon, back and forth between the two places. Uh, he had new onset of fever four days after arriving back in the U.S. with associated headache and myalgias. Now, what happens? This guy's come is on the East Coast. He's got uh, he he has fevers up to 104, and uh, but they're not every day. They're happening every few days. So he has a dry cough, has some abdominal pain. Uh, no, no abdominal pain or chest pain or diarrhea and no rash. And his past medical history has no chronic illnesses and no medications. He gets admitted to a hospital, uh, which will remain, remain nameless. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, he has a high fever without specific local findings, and they decide that they're going to do a spinal tap on him. So they do a spinal tap, and they find a few white cells, mostly lymphocytes with a slight elevation of his protein, and they decide that he has herpes meningitis, and they give him acyclovir. They discharge him on day three. The evening of the day he's discharged, his fever is back. And they send him out on acyclovir, so he's, he's continuing to take the acyclovir. He was, he was traveling, he was on deputation, and he said, I've got to, you know, I'm, I need to get to my next spot, and can't you give me something? And so they just gave him what they thought was the right thing and sent him on his way. So the next thing that happens is I get a phone call, and it's from his wife, and uh, I, I have no idea who this person is. They, they say, uh, we got your name from somebody else that we knew, and they said, call you, and so... I said, where are you? Well, we're, we're on the road. We're on the interstate between uh, Baltimore and, uh, and uh, North Carolina somewhere. So uh, I said, well, tell me. He says, you know, they tell me this story. He's had persistent fever, headaches, myalgias, slight abdominal pain. What do you say to this person? Let's hear some thoughts out in the audience. Yes. Okay, so I heard the, the response is, go get a peripheral smear. Any other thoughts here? Now, I'm going to just say that I think uh, the, the, the family told me that they were actually seen by an infectious disease doctor and that they, they did a peripheral smear and that it was negative. Pardon? Repeated. Repeated is the answer there here. Okay. Final outcome. I said, this exact thing. I said, you get to the hospital, where any place you can find, and you tell them, call Palpan. And I gave him the number. I said, this, this, uh, you, you shouldn't be uh, driving on the road with this. <laughs> Smear positive for P. malariae. So P. malariae is what's called tertian malaria. And the mistake they made here is that this malaria has fevers classically every third day. So it goes off and comes back on. There are other illnesses that have relapsing fevers of various sorts, brucellosis, borrelia. These have relapsing fever patterns, but it's important to remember that quartan uh, malaria is a classic. It also is less severe than falciparum. So these are much more mild illnesses. They very, very rarely are fatal, but they can have long-term uh, consequences related to uh, renal disease and other things. Okay, so here's a story. Let's see how we're doing on time here. Oh, we're all right. Uh, fever from Kearney, Nebraska. So here are the Kearney Titans. And... Uh, a 21-year-old boy, uh, or young man, has six days of fever, up to 104 plus fever, uh, plus fatigue, myalgias, decreased appetite, and a diffuse fine maculopapular rash noted near the onset, now resolving. He has a review of systems with some nausea, but no vomiting, no diarrhea, headaches, runny nose, sore throat, other things all seem to be negative. He's got an unremarkable past medical history and no uh, bad behaviors. What additional history do you want? 
travel history. Thank you very much. So turns out that they just returned from Cambodia. So this isn't fever in Kearney, Nebraska. This is fever in Cambodia. And they had just been there on a mission trip. And uh, so that was why I was called. They, they, they were from Colorado. Um, so this is a this is a completely different differential diagnosis now that we know that they've had a, a global experience of some sort. This is the young man uh, and his brother. They had both traveled. Uh, only one of them was ill. Before they traveled, they didn't get much help. Uh, and this is one of the things I'd like to say to you, those of you who help uh, people who are going out on short-term missions. Make sure if you've got a team of people going out that they do uh, they see, the, see a physician or see someone who can help them with things that are easily prevented. And uh, this team uh, just was uh, very excited about what they were doing but didn't stop to think about what they might uh, get involved in. But they didn't... Uh, uh, <clears throat> It was their lab work. They had uh, a, a, a low white count here with mostly lymphocytes, no eosinophils. Uh, platelets are also quite low. And these are the liver transaminases. These are about three times normal with the normal bilirubin and alkphos. Creatinine's normal. Your analysis and checks x-ray all unremarkable. So this is called to me by his... his uh, personal doctor in Colorado. So what do you think is most likely here? You can chat with each other again. Okay, let's have you uh, put in your votes. All right, let's see what people think. Okay, well, we got a lot of ideas here then. So, and, and the truth is that uh, fever after travel can be very, very difficult to distinguish many of these things. So we're trying to look for small clues that might help us to get to one or the other of these. Uh, if we say certainly that there are malaria risks, um, typhoid is certainly there, uh, dengue and chikungunya are both in Southeast Asia, and then infectious mono is also uh, not, not uncommon. So actually any of these might have been reasonable. Um, what is the most common cause of fever in a patient returning from travel? to Central and Southeast Asia. So if you look at everybody who comes back, who presents with a fever, the, one of the things that's helpful is you, you say, well, this is the most common thing. You know, This is the most common reason people have for coming back with a fever if they've traveled to South, 
East or South Central or Central Asia. So you can chat up that a bit and see what you think and then give us a vote. Get your votes in. Votes seem to be coming in slower on this one. Lots of uncertainty. So I'm glad to hear the chatter out there, just uh, sharing your ideas. Let's uh, see what uh, what people think. Okay, so malaria, uh, typhoid, dengue. We got, uh, again, a scattering of ideas here. Uh, you know what's interesting? I do uh, with uh, students, after, I've, uh, after we've covered a topic, we do this kind of uh, quizzing with the audience response system. And what's uh, very, very fascinating, I'm just offering this as an idea. All of you are probably teachers in various settings. But it's very fascinating to me that when I do this, I will say, well, what do you think is this? And I'll show them the answers. And then I say, okay, talk with each other. And then I have, I click the exact same question again and see how they, how they changed their votes. And it almost always moves in toward the correct answer, which is, which is fascinating, yes. I'm just curious, why you took infectious mono? Why did they, they get infectious mono? No, why you took it off the list. Oh, why? I didn't. The I, age, oh, the yeah. Age, the rash. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's just uh, say... I only took it off the list just to make a different selection set of choices here for you. Infectious mono, just in terms of statistical thing, this just says what's the most common rather than how does it relate to that last case. If we think about infectious mono, uh, you're usually going to find adenopathy as a, as a feature there. Uh, the, the, the liver function test would be consistent with that. The rash would be a little bit unusual in infectious mono. Mono with a rash usually happens after someone did something, after they gave them amoxicillin. These kids had no, no, uh, um, no antibiotic exposure. So, so the correct answer here is in this graphic. And what you see is that uh, if you're coming from Africa, Overwhelmingly, malaria is, uh, is number one here in fever. If you're coming from Southeast Asia or South Central Asia, dengue is number one. So if you're just kind of guessing and you don't really know, you'll, you'll go for that. Now, the other clue to this case was that the low platelets and the low white count usually going to make you lean toward uh, viral illnesses. So it uh, could have been a, a variety of things there, but dengue would be the most common in that setting. So the labs that you can do, you, there are PCRs that can be done in the acute phase of dengue, uh, and then you can do antibodies. There's a, actually a very nice new IgM antibody that is, is quite good. Uh, anti antibodies are not always good, especially during the first few days of an illness. 
But once you pass that uh, early stage, uh, and of course with dengue you can get uh, recurrent infections and get a hemorrhagic fever, not unlike Ebola, Lassa, Marburg, and all of those that can give a, a, a hemorrhagic fever. This fellow's uh, dengue antibody was strongly positive IgM and uh, symptoms resolved within a few weeks. There is a new vaccine that is partially effective, just reported this uh, last summer. For dengue, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, I don't think this is released yet. This is a study uh, of a a, uh, population in Southeast Asia. Whoops, sorry. Okay, so here's a case from uh, Dr. Polian Lim, who's a friend in, uh, South, in Singapore, and she sent this case uh, for me to share. 30-year-old female with high fevers and diffuse arthralgias for five days. Hands, wrists, and ankles were the most painful joints, but no swollen joints noted. Fever began in India while she was traveling there and on business for two weeks, and she has a four-month-old baby who is also sick with fever. And her past medical history is unremarkable. She's had her hepatitis A immunizations. She has some nausea, but no vomiting or diarrhea. She has a temperature of 39.4, and uh, her exam is really unremarkable. She has no swollen joints and no uh, rash or jaundice. And her white count is, again, uh, slightly low. Platelets are normal. And uh, liver function tests are also normal. Malaria smear is negative, and urine is negative. So what is the most likely diagnosis? So you can chat up that a a bit and think about that. Okay, let's put your responses in. All right, we'll see what what, uh, people think. Okay, we got a wide uh, variety of things. Um, And Chikungunya got the highest number of votes. That's that I'm happy to see. What should you do next? This is just a, this doesn't, doesn't use your audience response, but what, uh, what, what would you do next? No responses there? Well, you probably should do most of these things. You want to recheck the malaria smear, don't you? You always want to go back to what you, you know is very common and dangerous, so you don't want to accept the fact that one malaria smear was negative. Go back and check it again. You might want to do a rapid card test. You might want to say, just this sounds a lot like dengue is the most common. Let me do that. Uh, you want to think about HIV risk, but this person had just had a child and had had HIV testing before that, and so that was negative. And you really probably want to do blood cultures in somebody who's traveled to Southeast Asia 
And other tests would be uh, chikungunya. So this is what happened. Blood cultures were negative. Dengue was negative. HIV negative. Blood smears negative. PCR positive on day three. And chikungunya serology positive. We are now having an outbreak of chikungunya all over the Caribbean. I don't know how many of you work in the Caribbean areas, but chikungunya has become rampant in, in the uh, uh, Caribbean area, and we've even had a few cases in the U.S. now, uh, de novo in Florida, and, and of course a lot of imported cases, mostly in New York. Uh, the thing I'd like you to take away about chikungunya, it's a funny word, uh, but the, the key thing here is uh, that chikungunya is dengue with arthritis. Okay, so that, that's the thing I want you to take away. It's a mosquito-borne illness. Uh, but here's the big deal. It causes, a, instead of the myalgias of dengue, they call dengue kind of break bone fever, but this is dengue with arthritis. So it, it, and it can go on for weeks after the illness. So here's people start thinking, well, I've got an autoimmune disease, I've got lupus, I've got rheumatoid arthritis, and this is where you want to ask that travel history. Is it chikungunya? And that's worth remembering. Okay. Uh, and, of course, there was, an, there was an update in, if you want to see MMWR in June, about the outbreak uh, in the Caribbean. Okay, so this is a, a case uh, we call Texas Trouble. 20-year-old male is traveling from Colorado to Texas on vacation, and he became ill while he's driving, uh, and he gets fevers, chills, and real rigors. So when we talk about rigors, if we ask people to have fever and chills, they say, yeah, I feel chilly. That, to me, does not mean chills. Chills is when you do it in this. That's rigors, and that, that's, that's one of the uh, real trigger for me. For That's a bacteremia or a, a septicemia of some sort uh, related to something in the blood. So um, he actually has to pull off the road and ends up in a rural hospital in West Texas. Not in El Paso, but even a more remote area than that. It's a very small town that had just happened to have a small hospital there. So he ends up there. Uh, he's had his appendix out. Uh, he has mild, diffuse abdominal pain and constipation, no nausea or vomiting, uh, and no prior illness, no HIV risks, and here he is in this hospital. He's also hypotensive. He looks really sick. That's what the doctor said to me. He looks really sick. So, um, and he's got a slightly diffuse uh, abdomen, uh, tenderness, no rebound, uh, and his, his rectal was weakly guaiac positive, so he's got some occult blood positive and no skin rashes. Uh, his white count is normal, but this is a warning about white counts, and even in rural places, uh, you, you should be able to get a, a differential. So a, a normal white count or even a low white count, you want to make sure you ask for differential because this is a huge left shift, meaning it's got uh, a neutrophil uh, uh, predominance in bands or early neutrophil forms. Uh, also a little bit of a low platelet count with a normal INR. When we, when we see a low platelet count, we want to say, is this a consumptive process? Is this D 
DIC disseminated intravascular coagulation. There's not any evidence of that so far. Slight elevation of liver function tests, UA negative, blood cultures are done, chest x-rays negative, and they'd even do a CT abdomen, which is unremarkable. <clears throat> so they start him on ceftriaxone, and six hours later, he's still, he looks like he's deteriorating. Uh, they intubate him. They put him on genomycin, and vancomycin is added. Four hours later, chloramphenicol is added. So they're, they're, they're just, the, the, the doctor was petrified. He was losing a young man here, and he didn't know what it was, and he was just saying, I'm, I'm hitting him with everything. And so here's what he, he said to me. Um, well, let's see, let's do the question first. What is the most likely diagnosis? So here's a fellow who's not traveled outside the U.S. So you might say, well, why are, we, why are we doing this? He did not travel outside the U.S. You can chat it up a little bit, talk with each other. Okay, let's get your votes in there. Okay, so people, I see typhoid and uh, and shigellosis as two, uh, and I, I like those two differentials. It's very, very good. Um, uh, other things were possible, endocarditis, uh, would be possible, but there's no murmur uh, and, and no apparent risk factors, no injection drug use. Why is cholera not likely? No diarrhea. And, and cholera doesn't have fever either. That's an important thing. Cholera does not usually have fever. And uh, amoebiasis would be possible. He's, again, no travel outside the U.S. Well, here's the outcome. The doctor there says, I don't know, maybe he's got typhoid fever. I said, well, he probably doesn't, but, you know, let's see. Blood culture is all positive for salmonella typhi. So this rural doc hit the nail on the head. I, I thought he was uh, just a country bumpkin. And uh, it turned out he, was, he had a good clinical sense. This guy was too sick for other things. So he gradually recovered over 10 uh, days. You may have heard of Typhoid Mary uh, in the past who was a cook and who, who carried typhoid and, and actually uh, infected multiple families uh, as a chef. Uh, typhoid now comes dominantly from South Central or Southeast Asia. So this is the risk area you want to say. It's also in, in uh, Africa. Uh, that would be the next area under these two that have the, the predominance of all the cases. Antibiotic resistance is now growing, especially to quinolones, so we want to be very careful about that and uh, think about if you're, having, if you're treating someone, you might say, well, I'm failing, uh, and you might want to switch to, uh, say, a ceftriaxone or something of, of that nature. 
There are some safe and effective vaccines, but they don't last long. You have to repeat these things. And the new vaccines are really, uh, what I'm really excited about, some conjugate vaccines that are right now in testing. And you're going to find that those are going to be a big, make a big difference. And uh, I think typhoid is going to be a diminishing uh, consequence uh, in many of these countries where it's now epidemic. These tests, Weedall test or Vidal test, is ubiquitous. People love this test, and I really think it's almost worthless. I really don't think people should even be doing it. It's more likely to be misleading than it is helpful. Uh, so, and there are others similar to that, especially early on in the illness, that can be uh, very deceptive. And there was a, just a, an update here. You, this is getting chopped off on the screen here, but October 3rd, uh, there's an update on typhoid fever uh, this year in MMWR. Okay, so the most common cause of death in typhoid fever is? Just do quickly here so we'll try to finish up our, our session. I see we got just 10 minutes left here. Okay, let's see what people think. Okay, intestinal perforation is the correct answer. Yeah, so that is that is what uh, kills them. Uh, dehydration is usually not uh, sepsis. Sepsis is uh, uh, the the syndrome, and, and intestinal perforation is the final event. Dehydration would be much more common in uh, some of the other uh, uh, diarrheal illnesses. Okay, here's a 24-year-old British medical student who was in Kenya with me. Uh, she started having headache and fever while she was making rounds. One day's duration, temperature of 38.6. She was taking malaria prophylaxis, but I went to see her after rounds and said, uh, how are you feeling? Well, I've got a headache. Thank you for that. And uh, slight stiff neck. So I said, you know, you're a medical student. What do you think? <laughs> Malaria smear was negative. CSF had 20 white cells, gram-negative diplococci on a gram stain. Here's a question. What's the most likely etiology? here with uh, your responses and see what people think. Okay, good, good. So, so the difference here would, between the pneumococcus would be a gram-positive diplococcus, and this is our gram-negative diplococcus, which is the common cause of uh, meningococcal meningitis and meningococcemia. Um, the meningitis belt, I don't know if, any, if you've seen this, but I'm not going to even take the time to do the audience response system, but Where's the, where is it? It's, it's Central Africa, that's right. And so here is, uh, here's the, the meningitis belt, and there's a, a great effort to use meningococcal vaccine throughout this region. Here are four that were close to death, and I'm going to use this as my last uh, case. 
These are four young people in China, um, and uh, Dr. Doug Briggs was the, the person who was taking care of all of these people. And they weren't all at the same time, just scattered over a number of years. And it happened that they all met each other and said, hey, I, you know, I knew Dr. Briggs, and I, I, we all had, we almost died. Two of these people, uh, the two in the center there, oh, no, the, the one in the second and the fourth one were in a coma. And they got treated and got better. What did they have? Something we haven't talked about so far, but is one of the most common causes for, if you're taking care of people internationally, uh, of prolonged fever, not acute fever usually. This whole group had... This person has the same disease, but a little bit more straightforward. What is it? It's tuberculosis, yeah. So these all had tuberculosis, various manifestations of tuberculoma in one, one of these young ladies, tuberculous meningitis in another, extensive pulmonary tuberculosis in a third, uh, and I'm forgetting what the fourth one had, but they all uh, nearly died. Um, let's uh, use the last few minutes just for any questions or review of any of the topics we've discussed so far. Uh, yes? Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to think about typhoid fever. Yes. Is it safe to say, like, high fever, um, extreme chills, and constipation is a good difference? Okay, so the, the comment was, I'm thinking about typhoid fever is high fever, constipation, and, and just a really sick-looking person. Those are actually very good things to think about. Typhoid is more likely to present with constipation than it is with diarrhea, and if you just have a really sick person, usually they've got abdominal pain with that. So some of the others will be less likely to have abdominal pain with them. So especially when they start to get the, the terminal ileitis, uh, the, the, the lymph nodes around the terminal ileum, that's where they usually perforate. And, uh, and so depending on the stage of the disease, you might see it in the early phase, and then it comes back a late fever, uh, so a variety of manifestations. But a really sick person, bacteremia, think of it. And the only way to make that diagnosis definitively is with a blood culture. So that's, that's the limiting factor for many people in rural areas. They don't have a blood culture, so they're stuck with a lot of less than, than perfect tests. So you end up making a clinical diagnosis much of the time and then using antibiotics. Is Cipro still effective? Cipro is effective in some areas, but uh, it's increasing. There's increasing resistance rates to ciprofloxacin, so we just want to be aware of that, especially. Rosetamol is a good choice, right? Ceftriaxone is, uh, is a good choice as an alternative to that. So there was a comment somewhere else I didn't hear. Chloramphenicol still works. Chloramphenicol still works. So that's why the Texas doctor said, I'm throwing in chloramphenicol. So, yeah. Other comments or questions? Yes. Um, I'm taking a group to Bangladesh in January, mm -hmm. and because of the expense of the Japanese and supply yes. vaccine, a lot of people saying, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. 
what risk is that to not do that? How common is that during the non-rainy season? Right, right. So the question is about Japanese encephalitis or so-called Japanese B encephalitis. There is a very effective vaccine for Japanese B encephalitis, but it's quite expensive. And how much of a risk is that to a group of travelers who are going to be there for how long? For, so a couple of weeks in, in, a, uh, in a region in Bangladesh at a time when it's not the rainy season. So all you can say to those kinds of things, it's like saying, do I need rabies vaccine, right? It's a serious disease, and, and, and Japanese B encephalitis is a, is a serious illness. Uh, it tends to be in younger people. The, the, most of the people who get this are, are, are younger ages, but it can cause a significant residual uh, deficits. So when you get to these types of things, all you can say to people is there's an expense to this. And do you th is it worth it to you to just say, I, I just don't want to worry about that. I'm getting it. So uh, I think the, if you look it up on the CDC website, I usually do this before I give someone specific advice. I'd say go to the, the CDC website, look under Bangladesh and see what does it say about uh, Japanese B. I think it's going to be low in that region, uh, quite low, in fact. Uh, it's, uh, it's, mu it's much more to the east of, uh, of Bangladesh, but uh, still could be there. Other questions? Yes. So, uh, help me out on the clarification for dengue fever. The IV guy in this group that took care of one of my friends that was down there said, if you get dengue again, it can likely kill you. Uh, and, and with that said, I mean, he's obviously got an antibody response from the first exposure, and then yes. you comment on Right. So the question was, if you have, you know someone who's had proven dengue and then they want to go back into an area where they might be re-exposed to it, the risks are for that second or third exposure that you can get a hemorrhagic fever uh, exposure. Many people just have to live with that risk. There are people who, who work there all the time, who live there for years, and they have to live with that fact that they've had dengue or they've, they've been exposed to it at, at some time in their life, and then they'll live out a career there. The vast majority of people don't end up with that hemorrhagic fever problem. But it does happen, and this is where, again, we have to say, what can we do to prevent that? Uh, a lot of it has to do with avoiding uh, the exposures. Mosquitoes is, uh, is part of that. Um, the, uh, the dengue va uh, virus vaccine, I think we're still waiting to see what that's going to do in terms of people who have already had it and, and subsequent exposures. I, I don't know what to say about that. Okay. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for encouraging each other.